I'm Jeff Cohen. Panina Taylor is a counselor, therapist, and inspirational speaker who charted an unusual course through Judaism, Christianity, so-called Messianic Judaism, and back to her roots. For years, she engaged with and opposed evangelical Christians attempting to convert Jews to Christianity. Those experiences led her to write two books, Scripture Twisting, A Course in Jewish-Christian Polemics, and Coming Full Circle. She's the editor-in-chief of Unorthodox, an online magazine for Jewish women, and she has a fascinating story, so let's get right to it. Panina, welcome to Saturday to Shabbos. Oh, thank you very much for having me. We're really excited to have you today, and we want to jump right in, and let's like take it from your, your earliest memory, like where were you born and raised, and what were some of your earliest perspectives of Judaism? <laughs> well, even that is a complicated question sometimes. Um, I was born in, of all places, despite my story, Lakewood, New Jersey. Of course, back when I was born in Lakewood, it didn't look like it looks now. Uh, but I had a bit of a traumatic childhood. My parents were divorced when I was four years old. I was subjected to abuse by friends of the family. And as far as my Judaism itself, I like to say whenever I do a uh, a presentation, you know, my relationship with my Judaism was that it explained why I had a big nose, why I talked with my hands, and why I like Chinese food. But <laughs> other than that, I knew nothing really about, you know, what it meant to be Jewish. I just knew that that was the label that went on my family. And by the time that I got to high school, I was starting to have some really major existential questions. So did you have any kind of Jewish education when you were growing up before you got to high school? Uh, so yes. Yeah. So um, even though I was raised in a secular home, when I was in fourth and fifth grade, my paternal grandparents decided that I needed to know something about being Jewish. And so they arranged with the local Hebrew day school to enroll me and my sister. So I actually went to an Orthodox day school uh, for fourth and most of fifth grade. But, um, you know, obviously coming from a single parent, secular, completely secular home, uh, nothing that I learned there really stuck. And I learned very quickly that what happens at home stays at home and what happens at school stays at school. But that was it. That was my Jewish upbringing. And even though it didn't stick, so to speak. There were definitely some seeds planted that come up later in the story where my year and a half at the school really, I believe, paved paved a smoother path for me than I might have otherwise have had. Now, you mentioned this difference between what's going on in school versus at home. And my kids who are in yeshiva now, the head of school is always saying the parents need to model what we're doing in school so there's consistency. Is there a story or two you can remember from your childhood where, where those differences came to light? Yeah, one of the biggest examples that I have is um, it was early on when I was in the school. And, you know, I was raised by a single mom. We didn't have a lot of money. We didn't get to do a lot of stuff. But one day, uh, one weekend, my mom had taken my sister and I to an amusement park. And again, my mom was not observant. So we went on a Saturday and we're back in school on Monday. And my friends are all talking about what they had done over the weekend. And it was really cool. And everybody and I was really excited to share. I mean, I'm in fourth grade, okay? You know, and I'm really excited to share that we just went to this amusement park. And so I'm sharing with my friends. And I mentioned that we went to the amusement park on Saturday. So the teacher overheard what was going on, 
pulls me out of the classroom and says, stop being so chutzpah dick. And uh, <laughs> I didn't even know what that meant. I thought, you know, maybe it's some kind of a contagious disease or something. I don't know. You know, I'm, obviously I'm being silly, but I really had no idea what she meant. But I, I was very obvious to me that what happened at home needed to stay at home and what happened at school needed to stay at school and kind of, you know, ne- never the twin shall meet, as they say. Um, and it was it was not easy. And then you said as you started to get older, you were starting to ask yourself some of these like tougher existential questions. So what, what are some examples of what was floating around in your mind at that point? The big one was my life was pretty difficult and it was pretty painful. Like I said, um, abuse. And, and I was also doing, you know, some drugs. I was having trouble fitting in with other kids in school. And so, you know, the big question was if life is so painful and there's not anything out there bigger and greater than all of this pain, then what's the point? You know, and as I started to ask these questions, I would talk to my friends and there was a classmate of mine there who, you know, said basically, look, we all have those questions and there's an answer to your question. So I would imagine when you start having friends who are tuning into some of these tough questions that you're asking and they're saying, we have an answer for you, you start clinging to that. You're looking for some consistency in your life. So as as your friend is saying, I have an answer to you, what are you just like? hanging on every word saying, you have an answer to everything I've been feeling as a child that it's all going to suddenly make sense? I think at first, actually, I was much more skeptical. Um, And I gloss over the details when I'm speaking. Usually, it's a little bit more detailed in my book. Um, She had first spoken to a friend of mine about her beliefs. and, And so when she approached me, Um, I was definitely a little bit more skeptical, but I was also only 15, almost 16. So I was old enough, certainly, to have some critical thinking skills, but at the same time, young enough to, uh, you know, so old enough also to to be skeptical, but young enough to kind of be like, okay, what's she talking about? You know, be really curious. I certainly wanted hope, and um, I probably would have jumped on any anybody who had offered me an answer. But like I said, I was skeptical. But as she began to speak to me, it really did seem like she had the answers to some of my deepest questions. So as you're starting to get these answers, is it changing some of the things you're dealing with at school? You mentioned being with a tough crowd, getting involved with drinking drugs, that kind of stuff. Are these answers changing some of your behaviors that are going on? I would say after I came to um, embrace because we haven't talked about what it is I'm embracing yet. Um, But after I came to embrace the philosophy that she was sharing with me, then yes, there were a lot of changes that happened. Because, you know, let's face it, if you have faith, that's a a very powerful thing. And it really gave me the strength that I needed to make a lot of changes in my life. And and my, my life did begin to turn around, not until I accepted what she was, you know, sharing with me. But but I definitely began to think maybe what she had to say was the truth. So tell me more about that. What what was she saying that was resonating with you at that point in your life? What are a couple of the beliefs that you started uh, internalizing? Well, um, so, I mean, anybody who's heard my story or maybe even picking up on the hints that I'm dropping at this point, um, my classmate was a born-again Christian, And um, she began to share with me this idea that there was hope, that there was a way to have all my sins forgiven, which was, you know, wasn't something that I thought about before the conversation. But as she began to speak with me, I realized that, you know, 
I had done a lot of things in my life that were not like you're supposed to do and, and stuff like that. And so that was a big deal. This idea, I think the biggest thing was that I felt very unloved. And part of it was abuse, part of it was divorce, part of it was a single mom who had her attention divided a gazillion different ways. And this idea of universal love and forgiveness and that that there was somebody who would love me regardless of what I did, that their love was unconditional. And that wasn't something that I had experienced in my life. Everybody wanted something from me. Nobody loved me just because of who I was. And that was really big. I would have to say that probably was the biggest thing that made me want to embrace the system. And then of course, after that, I decided to embrace all of the other ideologies that go along with it. You know, I wonder as you're saying that you were seeking like love and acceptance at that point in your life, if it could have been any religion in that moment, if someone had just started talking to you about their beliefs and how it could bring that into your life, if, if it could have been a different religion and you might have had the same reaction, it just happens that you were having a conversation with this particular person with this particular religious belief. Oh, absolutely. There have been people who have asked me and, I, and I've said, look, if it was a, you know, a Chabadnik or, or, or somebody else who had said to me, hey, Panina, there's an answer to your questions. You need, you need to, to really grab hold of your Jewish soul and, and, and do these things. You know, the story would have been different. At the same time, I'm a very firm believer that everything that we go through, everything is designed to make us become the person that we need to be to fulfill our purpose in this world. So obviously, God thought that I needed to go through Christianity in order to be the kind of Jew that I need to be and to, to do what it is, my what my tafkid, what my purpose in this world is. And so on the one hand, you know, do I regret it? Well, I mean, I could say, you know, I wish it had been a Jewish person who had approached me instead of a Christian. On the other hand, I wouldn't be who I am today, and I wouldn't be doing the things that I'm doing today if I hadn't. So at this point, are you sharing some of these beliefs with your mom and are concrete steps you're starting to take as you're learning more and more about Christianity? Yeah, so after I embraced Christianity, I came home, and and as you hinted to earlier, I made all sorts of changes in my life. I stopped doing drugs. I stopped drinking. I started hanging around with much better group of kids. I started actually going to school and I started to share my faith, which is something that of course all good Christians do. And as I began to share my faith with my mom, you know, she had seen all of these changes that happened in my life. And she felt like if something could have such a profound effect on my daughter's life, it must be the truth. So I brought my mom and my sister both to Christianity as a result of that. So I imagine they're seeing these positive changes in how you're behaving and they're thinking that she might be onto something because it looks like her life is turning around. Exactly, exactly. You know, the the proof is in the pudding, so they say. So now tell me your... You have your mom, your sister involved in this. I imagine you're at an age you're starting to date and think about marriage and all that stuff. So how does your religious perspective play into the kind of people you're meeting and eventually where you settle down with marriage? All right. So after I embraced Christianity, after I graduated high school, I went to Bible college. 
and I was a counselor at the Billy Graham crusade for those who are a little bit older. Um, but, uh, so, I mean, you know, there was no question as to the path that I was headed down. And, um, my best friend in high school had an older brother who had also been to Bible college. He was a trained pastor. He had actually studied for missions aviation and ended up not becoming a pilot, which was a good thing for me because I wouldn't have met him if he was flying planes to deepest, darkest Africa. But, um, anyway, so I, uh, basically fell in love with my best friend's older brother and we started dating and we started getting serious and we started talking about marriage and you know as any normal 18 year old girl would I was thinking about what I wanted my wedding to look like and I had the example from television of you know a girl is always walked down the aisle by her by her father and I had this dream that my father would walk me down the aisle. The problem is, is that my parents were divorced when I was four years old. And I had seen my dad one time when I was around 14, but that was it. And so we had no relationship. So how's my father going to walk me down the aisle if there's no relationship there? So I asked my mom if it would be okay to write a letter to my dad to invite him to come visit us. At this point, we were living in Florida. My dad was still living in New Jersey. And, um, you know, to come and, and visit and get to know us better and whatever. And to my surprise, my mom said yes. And this was back in the days before texting and email, <laughs> you know, so I wrote a letter and actually, I don't remember if I wrote the letter or my mom did, but she sent it off to him and he agreed to come visit us over Christmas break. So he came down and he was getting to know us a little bit better. And he was also getting to know my mom. A little bit better you know because after 15 years they're they've changed a little and he decided that he was falling back in love with my mom wow so yeah that was kind of cool I mean you know what kid doesn't dream of their parents getting back together even even with memories of screaming and and fighting and and memories of hiding in the bathroom to avoid the conflict and stuff I still wanted my dad and my mom together you know and I had this dream of a dad right? Because there wasn't even that in my life. So my dad said to my mom, I'm falling back in love with you. And my mom said, well, I'm falling back in love with you too. Aww. And so my dad asked my mom if she would remarry him. And my mom, who was a born again Christian at this point, said, um, you know, I'd love to remarry you, but I'm a born again Christian and you're a secular Jew and it's not going to work. And I said, well, wait a minute, hang on a second. I have training in evangelism, which means getting people to believe in Christianity, right? So I said, I know what to do, not a problem. I went to the Christian bookstore. I bought a Bible, a Christian Bible for my dad. I started sharing verses with him. We took him to church on Sunday and my dad uh, became a Christian at that point or embraced Christianity. We don't like to say became a Christian because it implies the idea that he was no longer Jewish, which of course is not true, but he embraced Christianity. And so my mom and my dad were able to get remarried and they were after 15 years of being divorced. And uh, seven months later, when my husband Paul and I got married, my father walked me down the aisle of the church and we ended up going overseas. He was, um, actually enlisted in the Air Force. And um, so we ended up going to England together after we got married. So tell me about those 
memories of starting out your marriage together, how Christianity is playing into it, being in London. What is those first couple of years like as a married couple? <laughs> well, it was really interesting because, you know, one of the things when you tell your story in, in 45 minutes or an hour, you can't really convey the thought processes that went on. From the very beginning, my husband and I have always been truth seekers. That's been like, we're, we're honest to a fault. So after we got to England, I was praying one day and I got this feeling that God was telling me to start lighting candles on Friday night. And I wasn't sure where it was coming from. I mean, I did go to a Jewish school for two years, and, and so I knew that Jewish women lit candles on Friday night, but I didn't have an example of it. My grandmother didn't. My mother didn't. I like to say I, I, I'm pretty sure my great-grandmother did, but I didn't have any actual recollection of her lighting candles on Friday night. And um, so I went to my husband, and I said, I have this feeling that God is telling me to light candles on Friday night. What do you think I should do? And he said, well, if you believe that this is what God wants you to do in your service to him, then go ahead. And so this is actually a funny part of the story because I was like, okay, how do I do this? And I had inherited my great grandmother's candlestick. So obviously she must have lit candles on Friday night. But um, I pulled it out and I put them on the, the buffet. And next to the candlesticks in the bottom drawer was a Maxwell House Passover Haggadah. I have one of those. Yeah, this one was pretty old. But I remembered that inside the front cover of the Passover Haggadah was the prayer for lighting candles uh, for Passover, because we light candles, you know, at the beginning of every holiday. And it had a line on the bottom that said, on Friday night, say this, right? Because sometimes Passover begins on Friday night. And so using the Maxwell House Passover Kutta, I was lighting candles on Friday night. Meanwhile, I'm still going to church on Sunday. And then one day, my husband comes running down the stairs and he's all excited. And he says to me, Panina, I just read in the Old Testament, which is what Christians refer to as what we call the Tanakh, the Jewish Bible. They've taken our Bible, they've retranslated some pieces of it to say what they need it to say. Um, they've reordered the books, but it's basically our Tanakh. And uh, he says to me, I discovered in the Old Testament that it says that there are certain things that God told the Jewish people that they're supposed to do forever. And if forever really means forever, if forever really means forever, then there's certain things that my Jewish wife and my Jewish children need to be doing. And he said, well, it says in the Old Testament that God told the Jewish people that they're not supposed to eat pork or shellfish. And I was like, wait a minute. You mean no more ham and cheese sandwiches? <laughs> <laughs> and he was like, um, well, yeah, no. And I'm like, I, it, it did take me a couple of minutes. But I was like, well, if this is what God wants me to do, then, then I suppose I should do it. So, yeah, I stopped eating pork or shellfish. I had to think about it for a few minutes. But wanting to serve God in truth, I agreed. So I stopped eating pork or shellfish. So now here I am, I'm lighting candles on Friday night. I'm not eating pork or shellfish, but I'm going to church on Sunday. 
And then one day I was reading in the New Testament, which is the Christian part of the Christian Bible, and I came across a passage that was talking about head coverings. Only it wasn't really clear whether it was saying that women needed to cover their heads and men didn't, or men needed to cover their heads and women didn't. Like, I just wasn't clear on, on what it was saying. And so at the time, our pastor happened to be a Greek scholar, and the New Testament is written in Greek. And so we invited him to come to our house to try to explain the passage to me. So he comes in, and, and you know, I shared what I needed from him. And he said that, well, you know, this is a very complicated passage. And I'm like, well, that's why I invited you here. He's like, no, no, even in the Greek, <laughs> this particular passage is kind of difficult to understand. It's not clear which word is modifying which word and whatever. So I said, okay, fine. Just tell me what you think it means. And he said, well, what I think it means is that married women are supposed to cover their head when they're praying. He said, but I can't teach that because women nowadays don't want to hear such things. And being one who was seeking the truth, women nowadays not wanting to hear it wasn't enough for me to choose not to do it if I believed it was the right thing. Again, because we were always seeking to do what was right. And so I decided to start covering my head when I prayed. I'm lighting candles on Friday night. I'm not eating pork or shellfish. I'm covering my head all the time. And I'm still going to church on Sunday, you know, but something started to happen inside of me. And um, now I look back and I call it my spiritual identity crisis. But um, I believe that my Jewish soul, my neshama was at war, if you will, with my Christian beliefs. It was making me very uncomfortable. <laughs> Well, I find so fascinating about your story because you've mentioned a few times how you and your husband are about seeking the truth, that you were finding answers in different religions and finding a way to merge it all together into a way that you were living at this time period. But ultimately, this conflict was going to come up because the religions would cross paths in a way that they couldn't all coexist as you overlaid more things from different religions. So do you think that was kind of driving how you started to have uh, this kind of new conversation with yourself about where this was all headed? I, you know, I, at the time, I don't think that I ever thought I would give up Christianity. I mean, I knew what my gut was telling me. I knew that God expected more from me than what Christianity was telling me I needed to be doing. But at the time, I didn't say, oh, you know, I'm headed down the path towards Orthodox Judaism. For me, I think that I was very much living in the moment. This is what God wants for me right now. So this is what I'm going to do. Now, I knew I had gone to Hebrew to a Jewish school for two years. So it wasn't like I didn't know that these were Jewish things to be doing. I did. Uh, I just was taking things one, one step at a time. But then what happened was when we were in England and my parents came to visit us, I was about to have our second child. And I was helping my mom unpack her suitcase. And inside one of her suitcases, she had all sorts of Judaica stuff, like tzitzit and kippot and shofars. And and I was like, what's with all the Jewish stuff, mom? <laughs> and, uh, you know, she says, well, while we were in Pittsburgh, which is where my parents were living at the time, she said, we discovered a group of Jewish people who had been born Jewish, but who were Christians and had found a way to synthesize their Christian faith 
with their Jewish heritage, and they call themselves Messianic Jews. I had never heard of Messianic Jews, but it was intriguing. You know, I was like, oh, okay, interesting. Um, and well, I started to, to think maybe this was the answer to whatever was going on inside of me. And so when we came back to the States a year later, my husband and I looked for one of these Messianic congregations. And we were in the Baltimore, Washington, D.C. area. And, um, and at the time, there were three or four Messianic congregations. None of them were close to where we were living, but there were three or four basically in the area. They were all about an hour's drive from where we lived. So we started going to the to the Messianic congregation. And so our, our identity, it's interesting because I do believe that Messianic Judaism is a danger. It's a threat to Judaism, partly because there are a lot of Jewish Christians who get trapped there thinking that it's a legitimate form of Judaism, and they really, really have no clue, first of all, why it was started in the first place, which was as a trap. It was a way, it was a deceiving way to get Jews into Christianity. For us, it was actually a vehicle for me to have an awareness of Torah that I never had before. As it turned out, the Messianic congregation that I was in was trying very hard to be very Jewish looking. They were lighting candles on Friday night, even though it was after sundown much of the time. They were wearing a talit, even the non-Jewish rabbis of the congregation, the leaders of the congregation, but they would read from the Torah every Shabbat morning. Of course, they'd also read from the New Testament and they'd say it's all in, you know, whose name. But what it did was it ignited that little spark that was already there became this huge flame that drove me to really want to understand much more about Judaism. Now, at the time, we were driving an hour to this Messianic congregation, and my parents, who also lived in the area near where we lived, we moved there because of them, said, you know, why don't we start our own Messianic congregation? Because, um, first of all, the closest one is very far away. And second of all, you know, Paul is... An, you know, is a, is a pastor and, and you, Panina, me, um, you know, I sang, I played the guitar, I taught prayer, I did like all of those leadership stuff. In fact, my husband and I had been in leadership, lay leadership all along our journey. And, um, and mom and dad are very administrative. So the four of us together could, could run a congregation. And so my husband and I went and we prayed about it and we decided that this was what God wanted us to do. Meanwhile, we're trying to come up with a really cool, grammatically correct Hebrew name for our congregation. <laughs> we found an Israeli to help us figure out exactly how to conjugate the, the name that we were thinking of. And um, so Meanwhile, this sparks in my mind this thought that, wait a minute, if we're doing something Jewish, right, because we're calling it Messianic Judaism, we, I mean, we're even using a Hebrew name for our congregation, maybe we should actually know something about Judaism, don't you think? And so I decided to go to the local Jewish bookstore, local, it was still a drive, but local Jewish bookstore, to find a book on Judaism. You know, I mean, I didn't know what I was doing, you know, so I go in there and, and there's literally, of course hundreds of books on Judaism. I mean, there's thousands of books on Judaism. So I found one book with a very intriguing title. It was called How to Run a Traditional Jewish Household. 
is written by a very modern Orthodox woman named Blue Greenberg. This is only significant because of the fact that rather than using the word Orthodox, she prefers to use the word Torah observant. So as I'm reading it, I'm reading Torah observant, Torah observant, and I'm like, you know, I, I really like this. Maybe Maybe that's what we need to be. Maybe we need to be Torah observant Messianic Jews. And so I went back to the Jewish bookstore and I got basically a book on every topic you can imagine. I started with the Kitzur Shulchan Aruch in English, which probably isn't the best place to start. But, um, By the way, that's where I started my first Chavrusa, doing the Kitzur Shulchan Aruch, uh, because I just liked how I could do it in English and the answers are like right. pretty clear, the rulings are pretty clear, and like that's what I needed at that stage. Yes, but you did it with a chavrusa, and I didn't, which means that when I read the verse that said that we don't wear shoes on Tisha B'Av, I thought it meant we don't wear shoes on <laughs> Tisha B'Av. I did not realize that the writer of the Shulchan Aruch what meant leather, because if it's not leather, it's not really shoes, right? So I had this vision in my mind of all of these Orthodox Jews in Baltimore walking to shul on Tisha B'Av barefoot, you know? <laughs> and, um, and in fact, my first Tisha B'Av, after I came back, you better believe the first thing I did was looked out the window <laughs> to see if people were barefoot. So uh, anyway, and then I went back to the Jewish bookstore and I got out the, the art scroll, the big, thick art scroll book on keeping kosher with all of the charts. And, you know, if the pot's dry and clean for 24 hours, then it is kosher or it isn't kosher. And actually that came into play very strongly when we had all of these non-Jews in our Messianic congregation, but we wanted to keep kosher and we had to figure out how they could cook for us. And and bring food to our, you know, Oneg Shabbat. And it, anyway, we did a lot of stuff that was only kind of half correct and most of it was wrong. But uh, I took out, I bought books on um, modesty, on the laws of family purity, on basically every topic. I like to say everything you can learn about being an Orthodox Jew from a book, I did. Not that you can learn everything about being an Orthodox Jew, from a book, but everything you could, I did. And, and we began to dress more modestly. My sons were wearing tzitzit and kipot. If you had, um, and my husband, and if you passed us on the street, you would have thought we were an Orthodox Jewish family, just like any Orthodox Jewish family in, you know, in New Jersey or in Baltimore or in Jerusalem, you would not have known that we also were Christians uh, or Messianic Jews. But um, anyway, so yeah, so we did that and we started this Messianic congregation. We actually spearheaded, uh, we weren't the originators of the idea, but we were at the forefront of disseminating and pushing Messianics to adopt a more Torah observant lifestyle. Panina, that music says this episode is drawing to an end, but this is not the end to your story, right? No. So let's pick it up next week. Panina, thanks for joining me. I can't wait to hear how your story unfolds. Saturday to Shabbos is produced by Gary Wallach. Our executive producer is Rabbi David Pardo. Our theme music is by Paul Uden. To learn more about us, please visit tachlismedia.com. That's T-A-C-H-L-I-S-Media.com. Tell us what you think about what you've heard or suggest a story we should know about by emailing Shabbos at tachlismedia.com. I'm Jeff Cohen. Thanks for listening. Please check with us often for more stories of inspiring Jewish journeys.
Saturday to Shabbos is a Tachlis Media podcast.